You're listening to the Wandering Stoic Podcast. All right, for this episode, I want to talk about something that I've spent a lot of time on in the past several years. I want to talk about morality, the foundation of morality, how we come to various moral justifications. Uh, Really, this has guided a lot of my schooling, my education for the last several years, studying psychology, history, anthropology, philosophy. It's all centered around this basic idea here. So I do believe that uh, what I'm going to describe is a universal foundation of morality. It is definitely still a work in progress, but I've reached the point that I think it's worth sharing and talking about it, and hopefully you'll find the same. So, morality. This is a topic that has captivated humans for thousands of years. Some of our oldest writings are codes of conduct, such as the Code of Hammurabi. Good versus evil, the perpetual human question. Now, a few caveats. The goal of this is merely to describe what we mean by morality. This is an argument from definition, what the definition of morally good or immoral means. If I'm successful, then your internal response should be, well, that was obvious. What are you providing that's new? And to the best of my knowledge, though, nobody's talking about morality in this way. However, because I'm arguing that this is a universal and intuitive moral understanding, it should all seem obvious when fully explained. Additionally, I do not have a PhD in philosophy yet, which means there remains the possibility that I'm full of shit. I'll leave you that up to you to decide. If I am full of shit, then please send me a message explaining why. There is no shortage of people that I have discussed this with, including... PhD philosophers, and all kinds of people who are across the spectrum in studies of moral philosophy. So I am speaking universally. I am universally. I am also speaking generally. There are exceptions such as sociopaths and maybe some narcissists who might be sociopaths. But this applies broadly to virtually every human across all civilizations. Additionally, I'm not making an argument about what you should do. I'm merely making an argument about what is moral. If you want to be a good person, you follow these guidelines. If you don't care, then it doesn't matter. However, the overwhelming majority of people have an innate desire to see themselves as good, to believe they are good persons. Furthermore, if you choose to do harm, then under the moral guidelines provided here, people will be free to stop you. Now, Caveats uh, caveats spoken, let's get into it. If you talk to a lot of people, you'll find a lot of different opinions about what is moral and what isn't. This can easily lead us to become convinced that what is moral is simply relative to whatever culture we were brought up in. Depending on how we are defining morality, this is true. If we're talking about this is what people say is true or this is what this culture says is moral, then... Well, according to that culture, that's what is moral. But what is really moral? Just because we claim something is moral doesn't mean it is moral. Now, I'm not trying to get into any sort of judgmental of, uh, you know, this culture is bad, this culture is good. I think that's incredibly simplistic, and it's not where I'm going with this. I'm really talking about just what are the basic human ways in which all of us actually look at morality. Now, in many different cultures, we use religion to inform our beliefs, but rarely do we stick to a religion 100% or is even a religion 100% clear. Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Taoists, Hindi, Jainists, Wiccans, etc. Within each group, you will see a significant variation on which actions are considered moral and which are immoral. Even among academic philosophy, you see a lot of variations. Virtue ethics, deontology, consequentialism, consequentialism. those are considered the three main branches of moral philosophy, but even within that, you see a lot of disagreements, and there are more than that. 
Is morality absolute, relative, subjective, or objective? Is morality some absolute, you know, mind-independent thing? Does it exist before any humans? Does it exist independent of any gods? Or is it entirely relative to the culture? Or, hell, is it subjective to the individual? Or is it objective? Now, objective is something that's different from absolute. We can have objective measurements of things. A, a meter stick is objective. A person, one, once created, a meter stick does not change depending on the person. A meter is a meter is a meter. So it is objective, but it's not mind independent. A meter ha only has a definition dependent upon minds. Additionally, minds themselves, uh, minds exist. That is an objective statement. I think, therefore, I am. Therefore, there is at least one mind, so this mind exists. Uh, I guess maybe that's subjective, maybe that's objective. Let's stick with the meter stick rule of uh, definition of what is objective. You can have objective things that are not mind independent. So I'm not claiming that morality is something that existed before humans or independent of a mind. Actually, I believe that morality is an emergent property of self-awareness and social awareness. We identify that we are a person, we exist, we are a mind, and we identify that other minds exist. Other minds are essentially the same as us, and therefore how they deserve to be treated is how we deserve to be treated. And so maybe you could sum up the entirety of what I'm about to say with the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. However, if you're like me and you really like delving into philosophy, then that will be unsatisfying as a complete answer. And let's get going from there. So the biggest problem I see with how we discuss morality is that we tend to insist that it is either a clear and distinct thing or it is entirely subjective, a matter of cultural opinion. I think using an analogy to physics might be helpful here. Is light a particle or is it a wave? In reality, light is both a particle and a wave, at least according to how we currently see it. Similarly, moral actions cannot be divided into always moral or always immoral. However, a specific instance may be identified as clearly immoral or clearly moral. Take, for example, lying. Kant famously believed that it is always immoral to lie. Now, it's relatively easy to conceive of instances in which a lie is immoral. For example, if someone knows they have a sexually transmitted disease and they lie to a partner prior to having sex, that lie was immoral. However, we can also conceive of incidences in which lying was moral. When Nazi troops were going house to house looking for Jews, when people lied about Jews hiding in their house, that was moral. So there we see an example of the same act, lying, and it's either moral or immoral depending on the context. It is both a particle and a wave. Acts are either moral or immoral. However, they're status as moral or immoral is not necessarily inherent to the act itself, but rather inherent to the context. Okay, So this is something that, for the most part, we all understand intuitively. But it's frequently frustrated philosophers who want to define a clear set of rules for morality. We want it to be one thing or another. Now, this has especially frustrated philosophers in the West. In the West, we tend to focus on atomizing, we tend to focus on absolutes, black and white, one or another. If you look back in traditional Chinese philosophy, you look back to Confucius, and you look back beyond that, and we see a lot of evidence of an understanding of more of context, that something can actually be both, the, the sort of yin and yang. And they, actually, there's a story in Confucianism, uh, a story that I, I like to have fun with paraphrasing and there's a student who comes up to Confucius and he says, master, when should I put into practice these things that I'm learning? And the master says, isn't your father and your older brothers, aren't they alive? How would you 
take their duty from them, take their job from them. What, you know, how, how great are you that you should just go and take their jobs away from them? You should take some time to think about things, to reflect on it before you should start taking action. So the student walks away and another student comes up and the student says, Master, when should I put these things I've learned into practice? The master says, from the moment you wake up in the morning, you should be putting them into practice. From the moment you step foot out of bed, you should be using these. The student says, oh, okay, thanks, and walks away. And a third student comes up and says, what the fuck, master? You just had two questions asking the exact same question, and you gave two totally different answers. Why? The master responds, well, you know, the first student, old Johnny, he's uh, a bit arrogant. He's full of himself. He tends to be rash and think he's better than he is. So he needs some humility. He needs patience. The second student is often has a very low self-esteem, is is unable to take action, is unable to stand up for themselves, is unable to... Uh, you know, take charge. And so that student needs to be encouraged, needs to be uh, told to to take more action. So we can see in this that uh, Kongsa Confucius living 500 BC has a an understanding of context that you're not always going to have the same answer that you know, the same question, there's not a universal answer where it's always this, it's always the right answer. It's going to depend upon the context. And we see this throughout. We see in developing science and technology, we see this understanding of waves, wave function of the complexity of these things uh, throughout, uh, throughout Chinese culture, going back a very long way. So, this is really how morality is. If we're trying to simplify it down into absolute set of rules, commandments, we're always going to fail. And they're never going to be complete. It's never going to give us the entire picture. It's never going to always be right. Maybe they're right some of the time. Maybe they're wrong other times. And any if we if we seek to compose absolutes regarding to morality we're going to continually fail. However, that doesn't mean that we can't describe a foundation. What is a foundation for morality? What does it look like? What is that emergent property that I talked about? Emergent property of self-awareness and social awareness. I am a person. There are other persons. What does that lead us to? And I think by examining those uh, examples that we gave earlier, the, the examples that I gave earlier about lying, we can see where that foundation lies, regardless of culture, regardless of time. So the formulation of moral conclusions, it's not merely a function of simple arithmetic. It's complicated. However, we, do, we can look at a basic definition of what is universally considered immoral. Let's start with that. Unjustified harm of a person. Now, that will immediately trigger some people to think, well, who justifies, you know, who decides what's justified and what is unjustified? It's a fair question, but let's set this aside for now. We will get back to what qualifies as justification. Every person, every culture throughout all time, whenever they're claiming something is immoral, they're claiming that some person is unjustifiably harmed by it. So take some time to think of all the different things that different people consider immoral and see if you can identify who is the person being unjustifiably harmed, at least from the perspective of the person claiming an action is immoral. I'm not saying you'll always agree with what somebody else defines as immoral. Just take what they claim is immoral and see who are they claiming is being harmed by that. And often we find out that when something is immoral... The claim of who's being harmed by it is actually false. It's false or it's certainly unjustified. In many instances, the, the person claiming to be harmed is a god or gods, or in some instances, a broad nature, which is seen as a sort of person. 
this is the most vague form that the because it's the most vague because in my opinion god if there is any gods at all is ineffable ineffable we cannot possibly say anything about any gods if they even do exist we can't decide you know what they want what they deem any of that stuff we can't even decide whether that even matters for one thing um, but we can't know anything about them. You look at all the different religions and everybody you talk to is just as confident about what their God claims as everybody else. And they all have the same amount of evidence, which is nothing. Now, if you want to believe in gods, that's fine. I, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you that there are no gods. Go for it. But if you're trying to say that somebody is immoral because you just know that this God uh, sees it as that, well, I'm going to want some evidence behind that you know, before you can justify any harm. But getting a little bit ahead of myself. So again, people will always see some person as being harmed. In other instances, a person is seen as harming themselves. So they're both the person committing the harm and the person being harmed. Uh, regardless of who or what fills the role of the person, the fundamental claim is that someone is being harmed unjustifiably. Now, what qualifies as a person? Well, that's also a fantastic question in its own right, eligible for a future podcast. But for our purposes here, we can simply accept that at least some persons exist. The reality is that we tend to see personhood on a spectrum. Rocks are clearly not persons, and therefore at the far end of the spectrum, while humans are generally at the other end and clearly persons. Some animals seem to regard, be regarded as persons, while others aren't for the most part. But that is changing. Insects tend to be further away from humans than other animals, while highly intelligent creatures such as dolphins or you know some primates, as well as pets such as dogs, might be regarded as persons. Now, regarding gods being perceived as persons, they tend to take on a higher status relative to humans, becoming a sort of super person. That has key implications regarding moral standing that I'm going to get into later. But for now, let's move on to what we consider moral, which also has a universal definition. Preventing unjustified harm of a person or indemnifying a person who has been unjustifiably harmed. Now, this one is a little bit more broad because it includes harm caused by non-persons. If someone has lost their home to a natural disaster, someone who helps that person is seen as doing a moral good. Additionally, sometimes a person accidentally causes harm and the quote-unquote right thing to do is for the person responsible for harm to indemnify the person they harmed. Uh, indemnify just means to, to make whole, to return, the, return them to their former state. Uh, you crash into somebody's car, you pay to have the car fixed to original condition. Now, let's see, oh, I moved my mouse a little too far. Uh, so it's in this regard that we come across heroes and heroines. These are people who risk harm to themselves or in the most extreme, give up their lives to protect others from harm. Think of the soldier who throws themselves on the grenade. They die, but their friends live. Their fellow comrades live. Or the fighter, or the firefighter who enters a burning building to save others, especially children. The greater the risk, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the hero. Okay, so this is how we look at it. When, this is all coming back to self-awareness and social awareness. We are a person. It's bad for someone to intentionally harm us. Therefore, it's bad for uh, us to harm, intentionally harm others. Um, if we're in a situation outside of our control, we're being harmed. Somebody who rescues us is a hero. Okay, that's... That's how all of these definitions come back to. That's why uh, when people are having moral discussions and they say, well, let's think of the island of pedophiles and they all agree that it's moral to rape kids. Uh, so what? I don't give a shit about your island of pedophiles. The fact is the kid doesn't want to be raped by definition. That's the definition of rape. That rape is harming the child. It doesn't matter 
what the other people think. Morality is not about what you, you can't think of it so much in terms of what you do to others, although it is relevant to what you do to others. It is largely all wrapped up in that. But it's the person who's suffering the harm. Okay, it's that that perspective that we uh, narrow in on first. So the person being raped, they don't agree that it's moral to rape. And so you don't get to that conclusion that it is moral to rape. Rape. Now, this this does get uh, complicated when you start dealing with people that are excessively individualistic, narcissistic, who are convinced they are moral, su morally superior. They will consciously judge the actions done against them as uh, as wrong, but when they do those actions to others, it's in their mind, right, okay? However, generally speaking, if we would consider it being wrong to be done to us, then it's probably a wrong thing with the exception of, you know, some forms of brainwashing and whatnot. We generally have a sense of, no, I don't want this. No, this is hurting me. No, this is harmful. No, why are you doing this? You're, you're, you don't have a right to do this. And if you think that you have a right to do that to other people, but they don't have a right to do that to you, then I would say that your moral grounding is more than a bit skewed. Okay. So moving on from heroes and heroines, these people that, that risk or give up their lives, the more, the more they give up, the more harm they accept, willingly accept. This is harm that they've chosen to accept or a risk of harm they cho they've chosen to accept in order to protect and innocent, those are who we call heroes. So take some time to think about morally good actions, and you'll see that every one of those is seen as preventing or indemnifying someone from harm. When you help the poor, you're indemnifying them from previous harm, even if it wasn't harm you, cover, you caused. When you protect someone, etc. Over and over, morally positive, morally good things are seen as that. And aside from those two categories, there are actions that are seen as neither. Now, whether they are or aren't is a whole nother thing. In the, in the West, we have excessive individualization, where we see things as having no effect on other people, when in reality, they do have effects on other people. But there are some actions that neither seem to do harm or provide protection or indemnification, and therefore they're morally neutral actions. Eating some either you know some some food that is it's not harmful, it's not you know it's it doesn't protect other people from harm, it doesn't protect you from harm other than starvation. Uh, you know this is not looked at as a morally good or bad thing. It's just like uh, you're eating, you're drinking water, right? You know we, we can break a lot of things down into basic things that are neither morally good nor morally bad, and and that's what we've got is left over. Now these are the most fundamental guidelines, but they're not the only factors that apply to moral justifications. Okay. So that's where it really starts getting complicated. If we were easily able to identify, you know, what is uh, unjustified harm, what is what is justified harm, what it, who is an innocent, who is not, all of these things, the morality would begin to get, you know, very easy and be very easy to, to determine. But in some cases, it's just not the case. And in some cases, we see actually a heavy propagation of ideas that are actually very, very harmful, but we're convinced that they're good. And we'll get into more of that later, but first let's talk about moral justifications. What qualifies as justification for harm? So I said earlier that immoral, what is immoral is unjustified harm. If there's unjustified harm, then there must be justified harm by definition. Now, the only justifications for harm are those that conform to that which is morally good. Harm is permitted in order to protect a person from unjustified harm or to indemnify someone from unjustified harm. 
although in the latter that only works if the indemnification comes from the person who caused the initial harm. If somebody has something stolen from them, uh, maybe they're harmed, the money that they were going to use to buy food is stolen from them, then we would consider it a moral good to replace that money, uh, but we wouldn't consider it a moral good to take that money from someone who didn't steal from them. We can take that money from the person who did steal from them and say, hey, we're simply returning, we're indemnifying the person from that harm they were caused. This is a moral good. But if we're taking it from somebody who didn't cause the harm, then we don't see that as a moral good. We would just see that as compounding harm or passing the harm on to a new person. Now, this is why uh, a prison sentence, so looking at indemnification, it's why a prison sentence is labeled a debt to society. It's all about moral justifications. We all feel a need to justify philosophically any actions which cause harm, and there's no doubt that putting somebody in prison is harming their freedom at the very least, right? But if we justify that as a debt to society, it's a debt. They owe something, and in being imprisoned pays that back. Additionally, we justify that as a method to protect society from future harm, both by keeping the person who has shown themselves willing to commit crimes off the streets, but also as a deterrence against people who might be tempted to commit crimes. They'll be deterred by the punishment that is awaiting them. So these are how we justify these things. It's also how we justify a killing if that killing was done in self-defense or defense of an innocent. A murder, on the other hand, is identified, it's defined as an unjustified killing. It's therefore always wrong. Murder is always wrong. Uh, similar to rape is always wrong. There's, there's no justifi justification for those things. Okay, their, their definitions are unjustified. Okay. Innocence also plays a key role in how we go about moral justifications. People who are seen as possessing a high level of innocence are seen as more worthy of protection. Somebody who's defenseless, somebody who has no, no villainy to them whatsoever is uh, seen as more worthy of protection. Somebody who can't defend themselves against harm, then we start to feel like, hey, we have a responsibility to protect them from harm. Because if we don't, then we're in effect allowing that harm to happen and we, we have some responsibility for that harm. That's how we begin to feel. So the best example of this is children who are seen as tremendously innocent, therefore deserving of the greater levels of protection. Also, someone who harms children is more evil. Okay, Women are also often seen as more innocent, although not always. This has to do with often the defenseless, the view of women as defenseless, which, you know, I'm aware of all the ways in, the, in which that is bullshit. I'm, I'm really not, when I talk about all these things, I'm not saying that these things are the way it should be. I'm simply saying that it is the way it is. Uh, although, and certainly in, in some cases, I do agree with it. I do happen to see somebody who harms children as vile. I also see somebody uh, who is, you know, my, somebody who harms any innocent as more vile. And yeah, I do see somebody who is strong, incredibly physically strong, powerful, and they, they harm somebody who cannot defend themselves. I do see someone as that, as more evil. Uh, sometimes we see women, they're accused though of using psychological manipulation. We can look at throughout history where there's a lot of books claiming that, you know, these feminine wiles that they that they're actually stronger than the the physical strength of men, and so women are are not these innocents, but are actually dangerous. Uh, that's a bunch of bullshit, but whatever. That is so that that is how people have been seen, and in those circumstances where women are seen as taking advantage of their perceived innocence, we see them punished much more harshly than a man who does the same thing. 
Uh, same things with movies who portray that portray children as you know these evil uh, demon possessed children. Uh, they're much more frightening. So we have these broad stereotypes, and if something really challenges that, something we we perceive as supposed to be innocent, but in reality it is anything but innocent, uh, then we we see that as as definitely very evil, uh, and that that plays into these these stereotypes of innocence that work towards our uh, our moral judgments. Now, in addition to innocence as a character trait, as a fundamental trait of people, uh, innocence in regards to a particular event plays a key part in how we perceive the morality of a situation. If something bad happens to someone who we see as having done many bad things, then we downgrade the severity of the bad event because we feel that their lack of innocence contributed to bringing on the harm. They did something to bring that on themselves. Uh, now that is, uh, in some cases, sure, you know, that's true. People, you know, people do really bad things. And, you know, we joke that maybe it's a bit of karma when something bad comes back to them, uh, that maybe they, they deserves it. If, if somebody who is, you know, stealing from somebody and while they're in the process of stealing or hurting somebody, they uh, trip and fall and smack their head and they're unconscious, then we, we generally don't feel so bad about them, you know, hitting their head and falling unconscious. We think, aha, you shouldn't have tried to rob that person, right? You shouldn't have tried to hurt that person. Uh, that's why. But this also really leads us into the just world delusion where we see that a lot more than it is. But I'll talk about that here in a minute. Now, that's it. That's the foundation of morality. It's universal in its most basic form. It's very simple. Uh, just a couple of things. Harm, justified harm, justifications are under very specific rules. Um, seem, seem simple enough. But again, we are complex creatures. Our cultures are complex. And what follows will be a few of the ways in which we take a simple and universal morality and manage to create evil from it. So the first thing to remember is that evil in general does not come from evil people. Instead, it comes from amatheia or false knowledge. We believe something is true, but it is in fact false. Now, the most common way that we propagate evil is through the just world delusion. So the just world delusion is most basically it's a, a belief. It's a fundamental delusion. It was named by Melvin Lerner. Uh, we can see it actually in all people across all classifications. It's very difficult to get around. Uh, and it's the idea that, I think I said this earlier, that the world will work out in the way that it should. Things generally work out as they should. Uh, karma, you know, God's will, what, whatever, you know, label it something. But if bad things happened, you probably did something to, to bring that on. And the more that we are convinced that our society is a safe society, that it's a meritocracy, the more we tend to believe that when people are in bad situations, it's probably their fault. The, it's just it's just not true. Bad shit happens. Um, it's, it's not justified whatsoever, but it is heavily believed. Unfortunately, the more successful we are or the better we believe we are, the more likely we are to succumb to the just world delusion. And we tend to really look at as every bad event is caused by the person harmed. If we're successful, then either we're better or we made the right choices or one of the two. And therefore, somebody who is not successful just needs to make better choices uh, or it's just reality. You'll hear that. It's just people are not you know, equal. They should have equal opportunity, equal rights, but uh, equality of outcome won't happen because some people are better than others. Uh, and we want to we want to justify that we want we want to see when we have a lot and we see all these other people who have little and we find ourselves not giving everything we have to make up for that then we feel the need 
to justify it. Because again, we want to see ourselves as good people and we know that morally good actions are to indemnify somebody from unjustified harm. If we can look at the harm as justified harm though, then in fact it becomes our responsibility to not help them. We don't have to worry about it at all because it wasn't unjustified the harm that put him in that situation. It was justified harm. Uh, now, sometimes we have people who believe they're better than everyone, but they don't have success. And in that case, those people often also succumb to the just world delusion. They believe that the world were it left alone would turn out justly. However, clearly, they do not have what they deserve. So therefore, there must be a villain. There must be an evil person. It's not bad luck, and surely we're not, we're just, we're, we're not uh, over, uh, overemphasizing how good we are. We don't have delusions of grandeur. That can't possibly it. There must be someone to blame. And you can see this with a lot of conspiracies. A lot of conspiracies are there to explain a lack of deserved success. So a famous example of, the, of this is Hitler. Many of the Holocaust deniers, they believe they're superior, but they find themselves mediocre. And so they blame their mediocrity on Jews, friends of Jews, this big grand conspiracy. Uh, maybe they'll blame it on uh, other races, whatever. It's, it's always blamed on someone else who has conspired against them to deny them what they believe they deserve. Now, that gets us into the sense of superiority. Humans thrive in groups. As we become more organized and we thrive in larger and larger communities, some individuals find themselves in position of leadership. Was it luck or do they deserve it? Now, certainly some individuals are smarter, kinder, wiser than others. So the idea that some people are better, at least when it comes to leadership, it's not unrealistic. I know that there's some things that I'm just not good at, and these things are things that other people are good at. So if that that trait, if that ability is required for society, well, then it's better for the person who has that to have that power than for me, somebody who doesn't have that. Uh, we do vary in levels of intelligence and levels of ability in levels of ability and a lot of different things. Somebody who might be really creative might not actually be very good at math or engineering, or maybe they're both or, you know, whatnot. Actually, engineering, I might take that away from creativity because a lot of engineers seem to be very creative. But you get the point. There is variation among humans. Uh, but it doesn't take much examination of who ends up with the most, who ends up in the position of power, to see that often people with the most are far from better in any of the ways that most of us would make that value judgment. In fact, often they seem to be decidedly inferior, arrogant, egotistical, narcissistic, rash, incredibly foolish. Uh, we see this especially when it comes to people who merely inherit their status. Um, however, it isn't hard to look at anyone who is extremely successful and see where luck played at least some role. An example here is with uh, the founders of Google. Uh, we got a couple of guys there, you know, they're smart, they're innovative, they're at, I think it was Stanford. Uh, and in their garage, they come up with Google. Boom, brilliant, right? We, we're thinking this is innovative. If anybody deserves their success, it's them. I know I use Google. I don't use Bing. I don't use any of the other search engines. I honestly don't know how many there are, other, there are out there. I used to use web crawler back in the day. Uh, but yeah, Google was, was amazing, right? The algorithm seemed to work really great. And so they're billionaires. This makes sense. Except let's look back at about, I think it was one year into their, their progress, their founding of Google. They had an offer, an offer to buy Google from that, from them for $1 million. A lot of money at the time, and they accepted it. They said, sure, yeah, we'll do it. We'll sell you Google. 
Except for the guy who was offering to buy it, he got cold feet and he backed out. I'm sure he's regretting it now, and I'm sure the founders of Google are not, because they went on to become billionaires. It wasn't because they decided to not sell it anymore. They'd planned to sell it. They thought a million dollars was a good deal for it. It was, it was worth selling. Uh, but the guy who was going to buy it, he decided, no, no, I, I, I don't want to buy it. So they are billionaires now because they were lucky enough that he didn't back out. So even in the example of some uh, of people who are innovative, who are creative, we still see how the, the level of success they achieved had at least something to do with luck. And again, if, if your life depended upon finding the luck involved in Jeff Bezos, I'm confident you could find somewhere to see. Regardless of anybody who is super successful, if you want to say, okay, what contributed to their, their success that was not anything to do with their merit? And I'm sure you could find something. Okay. So again, this is, this, this comes into play. People want to see themselves as good. So, and people can also be greedy. They want to keep, they, they have all of this extra, all of this wealth, so much more. They're able to really live well. They don't have to work as much as everybody else. They're able to enjoy all of the good things and they like that. They want to keep that. I don't blame them. I certainly live a hell of a lot better than, I don't know, probably at least half of the world and I like it. I don't want to keep it. I also don't feel like I have a whole lot extra to give, but I'm sure I could come up with something that would be helpful, and I find myself not. So I, I find ways to justify that. And people with a lot more, they also find ways to justify that. One of the key ways is to conclude that they are, in fact, superior, inherently superior. Very similar to how gods are conceived of as inherently superior, and therefore we we owe them. We owe them everything. We owe them our devotion, our worship. I don't believe in any gods, but that is a conclusion that a lot of people make. Now, if we believe someone is superior, then we often conclude that we have a moral responsibility to them. Serving them is a moral good because they deserve more than anyone else. And the only way they can get that is to be served. This is obvious when it comes to production. People simply don't vary all that much. They certainly don't vary as much as the difference in wealth. No CEO works 3,000 times harder than their employees do. just doesn't happen. It's not possible. Uh, we also see this throughout history with monarchs, with emperors. They are seen as superior. That is how they justify their rule. Now, thankfully, we're getting largely getting away from the emperor and monarch system, but we still have a lot of people who see themselves as superior to others. In fact, in the modern era, we have a lot of cases of genocide. And if you look at every one of those cases of genocide, they're always painting someone as inferior, always an inferior and a threat. We'll get more into that later, but this is a, a critical thing. Superiority and inferiority, uh, it's a key element to, to all these justifications going back a very long time and on into the presence. So also, if we believe someone is inferior, then it's our responsibility to, or it's their responsibility to serve us. We are superior. We are deserving of their work. They, they serve us. The best thing they can do is serve us. We can really easily see this when we look at other forms of life. Uh, vegans, they see no problem with using plants to their benefit. Plants are alive. Uh, but presumably plants are not as deserving of the same moral protections that am animals are worthy of. Other people do not extend it as far as plants. They'll say, okay, you know, these animals uh, are, they, they should serve us. They are less than us. They should serve us and so on up. And then the absolute worst of humans don't even extend that to humans that are different from them. They think that those humans are inherently inferior and deserving of 
serving us and only serving us. So I don't know. The more I think of it, the more I think I should probably be a vegan. However, I am not yet. I have not extended my personhood, my status, my equal status. I have not extended that to all animals yet. So I do at this moment still eat animals. Uh, so these sorts of hi hierarchies, they are drilled into society. And it makes sense why they would be from a certain, you know, for, from a certain standpoint. We're a social species. We thrive on working together. We do better when the most talented people are afforded the resources to do the most good. When we assign resources to people who are more talented and therefore better able to help everyone through their efforts, society thrives better. Okay. This is really, really basic. Okay, we recognize that people, some people are better at some things than others, and so let's make sure they have what they need. There are, I, I really don't want to be a leader of everyone, so I'd like to look at somebody who is better than me and have them be in a position of leadership. Okay. But these beliefs are also a source of much of the evil in this world. When we falsely label people as inferior or superior, or when resources are hoarded by people who merely believe themselves deserving, uh, despite all evidence to the contrary. These are things I've talked about. Racism, classism, misogyny, they're all forms of classification whereby a person or persons are deemed inherently inferior or superior, depending upon traits which in fact have no bearing whatsoever on the merit of that person. That's how we end up justifying harm. We believe these things. We internalize these things. We're convinced these things are absolute fact, despite them not being true. And that's how good people end up convincing themselves to do evil. So it, it goes on from there. There's, uh, you know, one of the biggest justifications is saying it's just the truth. So there are these statements. They're emotionally hurtful, but they are true. And they can be perceived as good depending on the circumstance. We recognize that sometimes people believe things that simply that are simply untrue. Or they have dreams that are unrealistic. And in these instances, in order to protect them... Uh, we actually have to then protect them from the harm that comes later when they realize how wrong these are. So we commit ourselves to actions that cause momentary pain for that person, but they're justified because the actions protect that person from future harm. But that's also how uh, immorality, how evil is propagated. Whenever you talk to people who are professing racism, over and over again, they always say, well, it's true, but it's true over and over again. They recognize that it is hurtful emotionally, but if it's true, well, then the fact is it's true and maybe it needs to be said. Maybe we recognize it. The reality is, is all these racist beliefs are actually not true. They're demonstrably, demonstrably not true. I actually had a conversation with a, a young guy the other day. He was a nice guy. I, I enjoyed the overall conversation with him. Uh, for the most part, he was in his 20s, so he, you know, he, he had the, the uh, goal of establishing status, I don't know, dominance. It's this thing guys do in their, their 20s where you know, they want to they wanna joke around. They want to put you down and see how you respond to it and... I don't know. I, I had fun responding to it in a adult way, which was rather unexpected to him. Um, you know, um, and of course he's repeating a lot of these things that a lot of young men do that I don't think he realizes how homophobic and racist these things were. He was simply saying them without much thought. Uh, but I challenged him on them. I challenged him because, you know, that's what I'm going to do. But I also, you know, let it be known that really there's nothing that he could do to tear me down or make me ashamed or, you know, give me some sort of lower status or, or whatever. Because I'm just not going to play those games. And, and 
I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna confront him. I'm not gonna. I mean, I'm not gonna uh, defend myself. I don't need to to get defensive. Instead, uh, just take it and run with it. For instance, uh, a homophobic statement of, oh, you know, let's. Um, uh, you know, we're gonna um, find somebody here who's gonna fuck you in the ass. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I might like it. Uh, you know, or so on, you know, a bunch of bullshit like that. Uh, he's proud of uh, some joke that he told at a comedy club, and the punchline of the joke was negative against uh, uh, black folks and something about black folks dying younger. Uh, and he's like, well, you know, but it's true. Well, black folks do die younger, but the reason he was associating it with uh, has nothing to do with why... Uh, African Americans in particular suffer from certain diseases. We can usually identify some t systemic cultural uh, racism itself, why black people are dying younger, medical treatment. There's a lot of different things, systemic racism as the result, rather than him viewing it as something innate to a difference between races. Now, you might hear these couple things that I brought up and think, oh God, how could you think he was a nice guy? How could you get along with him? Well, I had a conversation for a couple hours, and those were isolated things that I just don't think he thought about well. And in many other ways, he means well. And that's what we have over and over and over again. We have people who believe themselves to be good people, see themselves as good people, want to do good things, uh, will often, you know, will protect an innocent. Will some of them will even give up their life for somebody that they identify as an innocent. But then, in other situations where they've convinced themselves that somebody is a threat or inferior, then they'll be straight up evil and horrible, and that's some bullshit. And we get rid of that not by you know simply writing them off and determining that they are inherently inferior and evil and therefore they deserve to have harm done against them but actually recognizing it that it is this amethia it is this false knowledge that believing things to be true that are actually false that leads people to evil and if we can correct that amethia then we actually will find that some of the people that we dislike the most can become the best. Uh, most of my friends, if they were to meet me a decade ago, would not like me at all, uh, would in fact maybe hate me. And they may be justified. It was, I was pretty far, pretty far to the right wing, believed a lot of bullshit. All right. So going on, um, because people or near enough to all people want to see themselves as good, it becomes morally necessary for anyone who wants to visit harm on another group of people to paint them as either a violent threat or inherently inferior. We see this one with minorities. They're either painted as cognitively deficient, therefore they need to be ruled, or innately violent, therefore they need to be controlled, imprisoned, or, or both. They're, they're both. Black Americans were seen as noble and hardworking, but cognitively inferior, and therefore that's why they needed to be slaves prior to the Civil War. But after the Civil War, we see the dialogue shift to paint especially black men as a violent threat and innately lazy. We see in a matter of a few years, the description of an entire race of people completely shift depending upon what those, wanted, those in power wanted to do. Remember, after, after the Civil War, slavery wasn't banned. It was just limited to people that had been convicted of a crime or been arrested, people who were in jail. They could be slaves. And so we saw slavery is uh, in another name, by another name. Uh, and, you know, of course, coincidentally, right before cotton needed to be harvested, a bunch of black folks would end up being arrested for what amounted to little more than being black. Uh, this continued for another 50 years afterwards, and in many ways it was actually even worse. Uh, this is something a lot of historians argue. I recommend looking into it. It was vile. It was, it was absolutely horrific. Uh, but again, that, that has continued into the, the police, uh, police violence against black men, seeing them as a violent threat. Uh, following World War II, Arabs were seen as backward savages, but not worthy of consideration and desiring to be ruled. 
Now, after OPEC, which had been around for a decade, after they finally exerted some influence on the price of oil in the early 1970s, oh, all of a sudden, Arabs began to be painted as inherently irrational. So remember, uh, where, where blacks and Native Americans were treated as cognitively deficient in some way, Arabs are painted as inherently irrational, unpredictable terrorists, okay? That... That description of Arabs really began in the early 1970s, uh, and it persists to, to this day. You you look at a lot of different things, and uh, you know, study look at the hostage uh, crisis. 1979 Iran hostage crisis. Look at how many people they harmed. No one. In fact, they released the women and black men. They. Because the women and black men, they respected women and the black men were already suffering uh, too much under America. And when somebody got uh, became very ill and needed hospital care, they released them. They actually took good care of these hostages during the for, for more than a year during the middle of a revolution. Uh, and all they demanded was for America to take credit for... What America had done, America was behind a coup in the early 1950s that overthrew Iranian democracy and reinstalled the Shah. And that's what America did. They put him back a monarch who was not loved at all. And then America supported a, a secret police, okay, Savak, the secret police that terrorized Iranians for decades after that. America provided all the weapons for the Shah. This, uh, America had a massive presence in there. America was doing a lot of bad things that really suppressed and hurt the Iranians. And what those hostage takers wanted was for America to simply take, to admit it, to apologize for it. But America couldn't do that. Now, is that inherently irrational? I know they're painted as a terrorist and people who lived through that time we're probably, you know, probably look at my description and think, oh my God, that's that's so wrong. But study it. Look it up. There's plenty of information about it. It's out there. What I'm describing is simply the truth, regardless of how it was painted. Uh, and we see that again, we, we see that continuing to this day. So currently under the Trump administration, immigrants, they're being painted as highly threatening in a variety of ways. They're taking jobs. They're rapists, they're murderers, they're selling drugs, all of these things. In this way, they, they are villains. We, can't, we shouldn't feel bad about the harm that's done to them. Because, again, these are villains. Throughout history, the reliability of women's testimony has often been judged not on her, but on the reputation of the man she accuses of harm. If the man has a low reputation, then clearly he is victimized and innocent and is de deserving of the worst of punishments. But if a man has a high reputation, then clearly she is pretending to be an innocent and is actually the worst of all, a false innocent. It's all of these justifications, these myriad justifications that we make in order to make everything fit within that initial structure that I gave. If we're going to commit harm, it has to be in protection of an innocent, uh, protection from threat, from a violent threat, indemnification. Somebody has taken something. We need to mm -hmm. take it back. Okay, all of these things. That's how we justify doing harm to others. Uh, and again, it's immoral if they harm an innocent. So often when we're framing the things, when we look at what happened, these hostage takers in Iran, they were crazy violent people who took these innocent, innocent diplomats. Uh, they were spies. Okay. They were spies. That's like the oldest story in the spy playbook is that you have an embassy and you have spies there. And if you watch actually a documentary, there's testimony from the people who were captured who talk about how, how bad it is when these students who hold them hostage get together the evidence proving that they were spies. Okay. <laughs> Which, you know, again, it's all in the framing. Are you the innocent or are you not? All right, we're approaching an hour, so I'm going to go ahead and end the podcast here. There is so much more I could talk about this, so many complications, so many more things, uh, so many more ways in which this is twisted. Hopefully, I've done a good job. If anything I've said sounds crazy, sounds racist, sounds misogynistic, sounds classist, sounds bad in some way, please send me a message. 
let me know. Maybe I just didn't frame it right in that sentence, or maybe there's something that I'm overlooking. Uh, or for any other reason you want to send me a message, then again, send me a message. ModernStoics.org on Facebook. All right, folks, that's it for tonight. Goodbye. Thank you.